Hey, good evening, and welcome back to our study of 1 Corinthians. I'm glad you're with us. Tonight, we're going to talk about Judgment Day. Uh, a little surprising, I guess, because you think of that being a subject of a book like Revelation, for instance. But believe it or not, it actually comes up here in the third chapter of 1 Corinthians. Judgment Day is coming. The Bible is clear about that. All of us will face judgment. Now, as Christians, I've always been told since I was a little kid, if you accept Christ as your Savior, you don't have to worry about Judgment Day. Your judgment is sealed. Your eternal destiny is secure in Christ. And I still believe that. However, there are multiple scriptures in the Bible that indicate that we still have to give some kind of an account of our lives before God. We still have to stand in judgment. So if that judgment that we as Christians face is not a matter of whether we go to heaven or not, and it's not a decision on where we spend eternity, then what is it about? And this is a passage that talks about that and gives us a clue. And, and let me just add to that by saying a really smart way to live is to live with the end in mind, to live knowing that you're going to have to stand before God someday. Be ready for that. Don't let it take you by surprise. Uh, so we're going to talk about what that means. Uh, first, though, let me just recap what last week was about. Last time we talked about how we're all working in the same field. We're all working on the same building. Metaphorically speaking, we're not in competition with each other. That's you and me as individual Christians. That's me and other pastors. That's us and other churches. That's Baptists and other denominations. We're not in competition with one another. We are all working toward the same goal, and we should be able to be one. So, no competition, no pettiness. That leads us to his next thought in verse 18. And by the way, I say this every week, if you don't have a Bible right in front of you as we're doing this, go get one. Pause the video if you need to. Get a video, get it, get, get a video. Get a Bible in front of you because it is going to be so much more fruitful for you to see what I'm reading. I'm reading out of the ESV. Uh, as long as you have some modern English translation, it's going to sound similar, but have a Bible in front of you. Okay, have I made that point well enough? All right, verse 18. I'm sorry, verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire." So Paul's talking here about the work he did in planting this church in Corinth. He's, he's saying, I planted you, and then someone else has been building on my foundation, specifically Apollos, and then whoever's the pastor of the church in Corinth now. So you get the indication that these verses I just read apply specifically to church leaders, to apostles, prophets, pastors, etc. But it does give us all, pastor and layperson, all insight into how will we be judged by God, and that's important stuff. So the first thing we see here, Paul indicates, is we can't really judge someone else's work. We do it anyway, right? Don't we all look at another pastor 
uh, pastors of other churches, and, and you probably look at me, and you evaluate the kind of job that the pastor does. And that's your right, that's your prerogative, but ultimately you don't really know, and I don't really know. I don't know how someone else is doing. It, that will only be revealed on Judgment Day itself. God is the one whose opinion matters. Keep that in mind. We need to, we need to evaluate pastors with humility. But notice what he says. He says, I'm building on, I'm, I, I laid the foundation of Jesus Christ. Anybody who comes along after me and works at this church, leads this church, they're building on my foundation. And only, only the day of judgment will tell the quality of their work. Was it made out of precious metal, wood? Was it made of precious metal or, or gold or silver? That stuff will stand the test of fire. But if it was made of wood, hay, or straw, it will burn up. And I love what he says. He says, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. I find that verse haunting as a pastor, as a Christian. I, I see the picture of a person who is saved by grace, but who gets to heaven to realize I've brought nothing with me. There was an old song we used to sing in the church where I grew up. Must I go and empty-handed? Must I meet my Savior so? Not one soul with which to greet Him. Must I empty-handed go? We don't sing it anymore, but that made an impression on me, this idea that I could be saved and yet stand before God someday ashamed of my life. I could be saved and yet stand before my Savior and be embarrassed and regretful over the way that I live because I've wasted this incredible life God gave me. This also ties in with the parable of the talents. Jesus talked about a master who left three servants with three different amounts of money and said, take care of my money while I'm gone. And what he, what he meant when he said take care of it was increase my holdings. And two of the three did exactly that. They increased their master's investment, but the third buried it in a hole in the ground. And I think there are a lot of Christians who are going to get to heaven only to realize I buried my, my master's treasure in a hole in the ground. I buried the opportunities he laid before me. I buried my own spiritual gifts, my own resources. I, I, I had so much potential to do good, and I did none of it. I was focused on myself. I was focused on my own needs and, and priorities, and I missed the opportunity to do something eternally significant. So don't be that person who's like a guy who gets dragged out of a fire by the fireman and he's lost everything and his life is spared, but he's lost everything. I think that's the picture of the person who stands before God in judgment and realizes God's grace has saved me, but I wasted my life. I think I've made that point well enough. Uh, verse 16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. So a lot of us are familiar with the idea of God comparing us to a temple, but it's in another passage, another writing of Paul, where he compares our bodies to the temple of the Holy Spirit. So lots of gems have used that, your body is a temple, as a, as a tagline, and it's been misused in many ways. In this instance, Paul is not talking about an individual person, you or me. He's, the word you is plural in verses 16 and 17. He's saying, we, the people of God, Christians, I'm talking Baptists, Catholics, Methodists, Church of Christ, Pentecostals, 
you name it, if they preach the name of Jesus, we're the temple of God. Now, what does that mean? Well, what was the temple in the ancient world? The temple was the bridge between heaven and earth. It was the place where God came down and intersected with human beings. It was essentially what was left of the Garden of Eden, right? It was a way to encounter God in a sinful world. And now the temple's gone because we're the temple, not the buildings we meet in. First Baptist Church, the, the church building that, that sits at, uh, on Main Street in Conroe, Texas, that's not the temple. It's a beautiful building. I'm thankful for it, but it's not the temple. If you go to church somewhere else, the, the building where you worship is not the temple, no matter how ornate it might be. No, we are the temple. The collective Christians of this world, we are the place where people are supposed to meet God because God's Holy Spirit dwells within us. And so what he's saying here is, be careful how you treat my temple. Remember in the Old Testament, when people misused the temple, bad things happened. You think about the two sons of Aaron who used unauthorized offerings and fire came out of the altar and burned them to death. People who misused God's temple paid the price. So Paul is giving us a warning, take care of the modern day temple, the church. Respect the church. Christians, yes, we can absolutely point out the flaws of the church, our individual local church and the church at large because they are many. And that's part of us helping hold one another accountable. But we should always respect and love and support the local church because that is the temple of God. Think about some ways we can misuse or mistreat the temple. We can, we can cause division. If you're someone who's stirring up trouble within the church, if you're dividing people within the church, then I wouldn't want to be you on Judgment Day. If you're someone who is spreading the latest, uh, the latest trendy spiritual thinking and it doesn't accord with Scripture, again, not a good place to be, not a good person to be on the Day of Judgment. Or if you're a, a church bully, and, and thank God, I've been in church my whole life. I haven't run into very many of these. But these people exist in churches. These people who basically take advantage of the fact that most church people are nice, gracious folks who, who will accept anyone. And they, they prey upon that very kindness, that very uh, decent nature to pick on people, to punish people, to bully people, to intimidate people, all for their own sick pleasure. And if you're a church bully, I don't want to be you. I don't want to be you when you stand in front of Jesus Christ, whose temple you have defiled. So Paul goes on in verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. So wrapping up this chapter and this whole section about the unity of God's church, what does Paul say? I, I get three things out of this. Number one, we're to live by the gospel. Live by the gospel. Now, what is the gospel? I, I need to define my terms. The gospel is the good news that God came to us. He didn't say 
when you're big enough, strong enough, righteous enough, you can come to me. He came to us in the form of Jesus. He died in our place. Rather than punishing us, rather than making us pay, he paid the price for us. He rose again the third day, and therefore all who receive him by grace can be saved. We know this. If you're watching me now, I can almost guarantee you, you've heard this story, and many of you, if not all of you, have based your life upon it. But a lot of us, including a lot of Christians who've been saved for years, think that the gospel is for coming to know Christ, period. It's for the day you got saved, the day you asked Jesus to be your Savior and got baptized. But I'm telling you, we are called upon to live the gospel every day. In fact, we can't really follow Jesus adequately without it. Let me show you what I mean by this. He talks about everybody thinks that they're wise in this age, but if they do, then let them become a fool instead. What, what is he saying? He's saying, give up your own efforts. Give up your own, because what is wisdom? Wisdom is the ability to make good decisions. It's the ability to choose the right path. Well, Paul says, don't think you've got it all figured out. Don't think that you can do this on your own. You may be a person who's been a Christian for decades, and maybe you've advanced in wisdom way beyond anything you thought you were capable of. I hope that's true of me, and I hope it continues to be true of me. And yet, I don't care how much wiser I become than what I used to be, I will still need the grace of God. If I ever think I've got it figured out, if I ever think I've got sin licked, then I'm really in trouble. So be a fool instead. Let him be a fool that he may become wise. In other words, come to him every single day and say, God, I can't do this without you. I can't do this without the strength and the guidance and, and the power that you give me. So Lord, with all these situations I'm going to face, grant me your strength. Lord, grant me your guidance. Teach me your wisdom. Help me to overcome this is what I'm talking about when I say, become a fool that you may become wise. Now, the quotations in that passage are from Job 5.13 and from Psalm 94.11. Paul's quoting Scripture from the Old Testament to show this has always been the plan of God. God's grace is something that is essential for us every day. I heard another pastor say it this way, I hope my church never gets over the gospel. And what does he mean by that? He means that I hope we're a gospel-centered church a church that every single day we stay humble, we stay at the foot of the cross knowing we can't do this on our own. Whether we're 10 members or 10,000 members, whether our budget is uh, 20,000 a year or 2 million a year, it doesn't matter. We need the grace of God. And, and that's living according to the gospel. Second thing this passage tells us, don't exalt human preachers or leaders. This has been a theme since the beginning of of 1 Corinthians, talked about it in the first chapter. He comes back to that same thing as it's not about Paul. It's not about Peter. It's not about Apollos. It's not about any of those people. It's about God. It's about Jesus Christ. And it's astonishing, isn't it, that 2,000 years later, we still don't get that. We still make celebrities out of preachers. And, and y'all, listen, I of all people believe that the office of the pastor and the preacher is a sacred one, and it's something we should respect, and people who do that job uh, should be supported, should be encouraged. I'm thankful for all the encouragement and support you give me, but don't, don't, whatever you do, don't make us into more than we are. 
And one way, one very subtle way we do this is we'll identify churches by their pastor. I mean, here in Houston, we'll say, oh yeah, that's, uh, you know, that's, that's Ed Young's church, or oh, that's, that's Joel Osteen's church, or that's, that's Ralph West's church. No, those men don't own those churches. Now, they belong to the church, not, not the other way around. And I try, to, I try to do this in my own language. I'll catch myself sometimes saying, oh, so-and-so, uh, yeah, he's, he's my church treasurer. Or, you know, Michael, he's my youth minister. Or Robert, he's my music minister. Actually, they're not. They belong to Jesus Christ. I work alongside them. Don't exalt human preachers and leaders. And notice Paul includes himself in this list. It's not about me. Paul says. I don't, I'm not looking for a following. I'm not looking for a little cult of Paul. In fact, that's the last thing in the world I want. I want you to follow Jesus. And if you don't even remember that I was the one who told you about him, that's okay as long as you know Jesus. So we need to wean ourselves from all this ungodly reverence we have for certain pastors and preachers. Third thing, submit to Jesus in everything. Verse 23, let me read that again. It says, uh, it says, you are Christ's. First of all, it says, all things are yours. What a great promise. We as the church, all things ultimately are ours. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. So there's a beautiful thing that we read about in the Gospels, that Jesus was in very nature God, and yet he condescended. He became a servant, a slave. He submitted himself to God. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus' humanity wanted to run, wanted to walk away from the cross and, and not die. And I don't blame him, but he submitted to his Father's will. And we should submit to the will of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And, and in, an, in an individual sense, my tongue got away from me there, in an individual sense, we know what that means. It means obeying the commands of Scripture. It means letting the Holy Spirit guide us. It means seeking in all things to love our neighbors. But what does it mean for a church to submit to Jesus? I tell you, it means a lot more than sticking a cross on the wall. It means a lot more than celebrating the Lord's Supper once a quarter or once a month or once a week. I know, I know this much. It means we submit to the authority of His Word alone. We submit to the authority of His Word alone in all of our doctrine and in all of our decisions. So when we're teaching in life group, when we're talking about God in casual conversations, when we're praying, when someone is standing behind the pulpit preaching me or, or somebody else, it all has to line up with the Word of God. I will tell you this story some in more detail some other time, but I remember being in church one night when a man who'd been a Christian his whole life said these words. You know, using Scripture to make a decision is okay to a point, but. And everything he said after but was worthless. Because if you come up with something that you think outranks Scripture, you're wrong. We have to submit to the authority of God's Word alone in all of our doctrine and all of our decisions. If the Bible says it, we need to follow it. That's part of a church submitting itself to Jesus. Secondly, we need to make sure all of our, our ministries exalt Him, that they're focused on Him, that He is the focus, he is the, he is the reason why we do it. 
Churches, the longer the church, the longer a church is in existence, the more pro programs it's going to have, because the church is sort of like the government. Once it starts a program, it's pretty hard to cancel it, right? And so churches, the longer they've been around, the more complex they become with all these different programs, all these different branches. And every once in a while, the church needs to sit down and, and prune some of those branches and say, you know, this had good intentions originally, but now it's got nothing to do with the gospel. We're just doing this because we've always done it. We need to make sure all of our ministries exalt Him alone. And then third, submitting to Jesus as a, as a church means we measure all of our priorities by this one question, does this matter to Jesus? Churches get involved in all kinds of things in the community. But sometimes I think we let other things guide us other than the Spirit of Christ. We've got all these plans, we've got all these goals, all these preferences, things we want to see happen. But we should limit ourselves to, does this matter to Jesus? Is this crucial to the gospel? And that's what it means to submit to Jesus as a church. And that's a, that's a constant process, I think, of evaluating me as a pastor, us as a church body, the whole ministry staff, deacons, other leaders. We should constantly be asking these questions of ourselves. And, and as hard as this is, because we all have strong opinions, we need to be willing to let someone else confront us and say, hey, you know, Jeff, I don't think what you said from the pulpit the other day is, is strictly biblical. Will you show me where it says that in the Word? I want you to say that to me. I, I want you to come up to me and say, Jeff, I know we have this plan to do this new program, but is this really something that's important to Jesus? And if I can't defend it on those terms, then you're right. We need to be able to have those conversations without getting angry with one another because we're having them in love and because the, the authority of Jesus takes precedence. So let me just wrap it up with this. I, I visited my parents this last weekend, first time since all this COVID stuff started. It was great to see them. Um, but, you know, every time I go home in, in the house that I grew up in, it reminds me so much of my childhood. And I, had re I have really good parents, and yet I was a sinner and still am. As a child, I, I was someone who wanted to do my own thing. And one of the things I look back on and recognize is every time I submitted to my parents' authority, every time I realized, you know, mom and dad know best, it all worked out for me. Every time, on the other hand, that I said to myself, mom and dad don't know what they're doing, they don't know what they're talking about, I can make this decision on my own terms, it never really worked out. A huge part of being a successful child is realizing your parents are in charge. Now, they won't always be. You grow up to be an adult and you make your own decisions. But the Bible doesn't compare us to adults before God. It compares us to children. A huge part of being a successful child of God is realizing He's in charge, is submitting to Him in every way. That's what that term, the fear of the Lord, is all about. It's where you say, I dare not do anything that is in direct defiance of His direct spoken revealed will. And man, that is a happy place to be when you, when you get to the point where you live that way. That's what we should all be seeking. God bless y'all. Listen, I, hopefully you've gotten my email by now and you know that uh, we're, we're pausing our in-person worship services for a while, at least through the end of July with the current spike in coronavirus cases in our area. Uh, we, we know that any kind of gathering, uh, whether it's a restaurant or 
uh, whether a, a hardware store or a church service, any kind of gathering you attend, there's a risk there of spreading contagion. And I know we can't stay home constantly. We've got to get out of the house sometime. But we have the ability to do worship in an online fashion, and we want to take advantage of that while these virus cases are high, because we at First Baptist, we want to be part of the solution and not the problem. Uh, we want to love our neighbors well. So until the numbers start to trend downward and until we feel like uh, things, have, uh, things have taken a turn for the better and things are safer for everyone, we don't want to contribute to the spread. So it, it was with a great deal of sadness this last Monday and Tuesday that we as a staff made the decision uh, to go to online-only worship through the end of July. But I can't wait to get back together again. This won't last forever. You know that. Uh, it seems like it now, but it won't last forever. We'll get back together again soon, and I look forward to it. And until then, God bless you. Keep each other in prayer. Stay in the Word. And I love you. Bye-bye.